Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. If you're using one of those church Bibles, you can turn to page 844. And that'll bring you to Mark chapter 8. I entitled this message, Seeing the Necessity of the Cross. Seeing the Necessity of the Cross. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I, I have fought getting old. Now, some of you are probably thinking, you're not old. Well, maybe not as some of you, but I feel old. <laughs> I feel old. Children do that to you, I think. I feel like I'm getting my life back, though, with my grandchild. Somehow. It's rejuvenating. It's kind of exciting. But I, I didn't, I would postpone going to the doctor, like most men. And I think to some degree it was pride. I just resisted the idea that I would be told that my body is failing on any level. Because then I would have to come to grips with the fact that, Jeremy, you are slowly but surely shutting down. And so for a long time I knew that my vision was going. But I, I just kept resisting it. And I finally got to the point where driving at night became very challenging, exciting, <laughs> to say the least. I had to actually come up on signs. You know the idea. I could not see far away. Fortunately, I can see close up, and that's great because I read a lot. But far away becomes very blurry. So I went to the optometrist. Is that the right name for the eye doctor? And he told me, yes, you're a little out of whack, and he prescribed my glasses, and I don't know if any of you have had this happen or experienced this, those of you who have had trouble with your sight, but when I put those glasses on, it was like a new world. It really was. It was so exciting. I had forgotten how beautiful things really were. Even as simple as a tree leaf, I did not realize, I, I was not seeing the crispness of a tree leaf. I remember going to Disneyland during Christmas time, and I love that time of year at that park, because they put out all the lights. And I did not realize, as my vision was going away, that I was seeing a blurred light, but they were really crisp and white and, and gorgeous. And, and then when I sat in a large movie theater... I'm like, wow, you actually can see their faces. And I'm like, I wanted to go back like five years and rewatch all those movies. I felt like I had robbed myself of such joy and clarity. So getting a good pair of glasses, having your sight restored so that you can see everything clearly and crisply, crisply is, is really a blessing. It's a it's a joy. But more important than even that, beloved, is our spiritual vision. How do we see with our spiritual eyes? Are they blurred? Are we maybe even blind? Or we can't really see God or the things of God? Or we see, but like the way I saw it, it wasn't crisp, it wasn't defined, it was mucky and I was missing out on the pleasures that 2020 vision can give you, especially when it comes to seeing God rightly. So this morning, I, I'm just trusting that you will consider these things, that we will walk away 
desiring and wanting to have our sight to be the best that it possibly can be when it comes to Christ and the things of Christ and, and who He is and what He has accomplished. That we wouldn't miss it in even the slightest detail. So this morning as we look at this section, we'll be, we'll be talking about sight and we'll ta- be talking about vision. Let's get into it now. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33, page 844. Just follow along with me, if you would, while I read God's inspired holy word. Verse 22, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So this is Jesus and his disciples had come to Bethsaida. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This morning inside of your bulletins, there is an outline that you can follow along. Left-hand side, at the top of that outline, there is this statement Just to let you know where we're going, this morning we're going to analyze Jesus' first clear announcement about his death and the events surrounding it so that we might value the significance of truly understanding Christ's mission. Before we get to that first point, let me just do a little bit of review for you and set up the context. Jesus has chosen 12 men to be with him in his ministry, his 12 disciples. These men were the inner circle, and as such, they had privileges and special access to Jesus that the general population just simply did not have. Jesus had a limited amount of time to train these men because he had a predetermined appointment with death. It was a critical, it was critical that Jesus' men fully understood who he was the mission he came to fulfill, and what he expected of his twelve, of his disciples. Confusion in any of these areas would be detrimental to the future success of Jesus' disciples. Now we have reached a very significant turning point in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us, we started a long time ago back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and we're just moving our way through the Gospel of Mark. But we have reached a point in the book that we need to take notice of. 
Jesus' public ministry in and around Galilee and the Sea of Galilee was over. It was over now. And He is now preparing, beginning in this chapter, to make His way to Jerusalem where He will be crucified. Jesus knew that. We know that. Because we live on this side of the cross. We have the end of the story. But Jesus' twelve disciples were oblivious to that. You have to remember that to understand why they're reacting the way they are. The crowds, the religious leaders, and the political rulers all had their opinions, and we just read about some of them, about who Jesus was. But they were all wrong. And Jesus was determined to see the twelve his inner circle, his disciples, to come to the right conclusions about his identity and his mission. Last week, we saw, if you were here, I'll just remind you, we saw the disciples still, at this point in Jesus' ministry, still remain confused about Jesus' unique identity. Remember in that text that Jesus said to his disciples these words, chapter 8, verse 18, Having eyes, do you not see? And do you not yet understand? Following that episode then is now this unique miracle that we just read about. This opening the eyes of a blind man. A man who could not see. It is only recorded in Mark. And what that means is it's not in Matthew or Luke or John, the other three Gospels. That brings us to the first point now in the outline, and it is the two-stage healing. The two-stage healing. Mark chapter 8, I'm going to read it to you again. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, this miracle is unique, but not maybe because of the reason you think it is. It's not because Jesus spit on his eyes, I know that sounds strange, and laid his hands on him. If you recall, we talked about a a similar miracle involving Jesus' spit. And that was in regard to Jesus opening the deaf man's ears. Similar actions were used by Jesus. That was in chapter 7, verse 32. He opened his ears And he removed the speech impediment that that disabled man had. And when we looked at it then, we thought, boy, this seems like some bizarre or strange behavior. But it was really Jesus' way of assuring the person through these symbolic acts that he was actually going to heal them. That's what he's doing. It's the same type of events. He's communicating like he did with the deaf man. He's communicating with the blind man. I am going to do something specifically to your eyes. And that is the way he communicated these things, through spit and laying on of hands. As I've said before, Jesus does not have magic spit. 
He does not have magic spit. That's not what Mark is trying to communicate to us. Also, remember, he did not use this method every time he healed a blind person. We'll get there, but in Mark chapter 10, verse 52, there's no mention of spit. He just healed the man like he's healed many other people by just saying, open your eyes, or get up and walk, or you are well. But in this case, his actions did help express his healing intentions and may have helped to stimulate this man's fledgling faith in Jesus' ability to heal him. So, why then is this miracle unique? It is the only recorded miracle where Jesus healed in stages. It is the only one. Now that really stands out when you consider that throughout Mark, what is emphasized is the instantaneous nature of Jesus' power to heal. Just listen to me as I read through some of these. Mark chapter 1, 42. And immediately the leprosy left him. Gone. Chapter 2, verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed. Paralytic. Instant healing. Not a progression. Not over a couple of days. Not in a couple of stages. Chapter 5, verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. The woman with the blood condition, chronic condition that was killing her, she was healed immediately. Chapter 5, verse 42. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was dead. So he didn't bring her back partly to life and go through this process. And then immediately, or finally, 10 verse 52, and immediately he recovered his sight. That was another blind man that Jesus healed. Immediately, it says. So what's up with this two-stage healing? We know, we know right away, we know this. It wasn't any problem with Jesus. It wasn't like his batteries were low that day. You know, his supernatural juice. He's like, ooh, I gave it to you. Oop, not enough. i got to pull out a little more. That's not what's going on here. I think it's important to know that Mark is the only gospel writer, and I've mentioned this already, to record this miracle. And we then should consider his strategic placement of it between the disciples' failure to see Chapter 8, verse 18, where Jesus is saying, Having eyes, do you not see or understand? Do you not yet understand? Verse 21. And then Peter's confession on behalf of the disciples that Jesus is the Christ. So what Mark has done is he's taken this healing story. We have to see that because I've, I think I talked to you about it a week ago or a few weeks ago. Not everything that Jesus did is recorded in the Gospels. So the writers picked particular events that had significant meaning to either their story or to their reader. So he places this healing miracle, two-stage healing miracle of a blind man, in between the story of Jesus saying, you guys just don't get it, you don't see, you're, you're not seeing clearly. And all of a sudden it appears that maybe they are seeing clearly because now Peter says, when he's asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Okay. Now sight, something you should know, and we know this today, sight was a widely used metaphor. Metaphor just means a figure of speech for understanding. For understanding. Like if 
I said to you, do you see what I'm saying? What am I saying? That you see my words? No, do you get it? Do you understand? Jesus is using it that very way when he says, you have eyes, but you do not see. You do not see you. It wasn't saying you, you don't have vision where you can't see me standing before you, but you see me, but you don't understand me. You don't understand me. I believe Mark was using this miracle to imply that the disciples' spiritual eyes or understanding would slowly but surely be open to spiritual reality. To spiritual reality. You know what spiritual reality is? It is to see things the way God sees them. That's spiritual reality. Not the way you and I see them. Not always. But to see the way God sees them. Accurately. When we dial into the way God sees things, then we have spiritual reality. Then we understand the world as we should. In the miracle, the man's eyes went from blind to blurry to seeing everything clearly. Jesus did not leave him with blurry vision, beloved. Hey, how's your vision? Oh, I see, but they look like men. All right, our trees walking around. Good. See ya. He didn't leave him in that state, but he completed the healing work that he had started in this person. He completed it to the end. He wasn't going to leave them with blurry vision, beloved. The disciples were slow to understand or truly see. We have seen that over and over again. Why don't they get it? Why don't they get it? But Jesus would not leave them in a stage of confusion or fuzziness about his true identity and mission. How cruel would that have been? How cruel that would have been. One writer says the importance of this story for Mark is that it anticipates the opening of the eyes of understanding of the disciples. Of the disciples. So, if the disciples, as I said, failed to truly understand Jesus, they would actually be worse off than a blind man or a man whose vision is seriously impaired. They too were in great need of having their eyes completely opened to the truth about Jesus, that they might see clearly. And that, I believe, is what Mark is anticipating as we move through this section of text. Now that brings us to Peter's confession. And here I'm calling it a misunderstood confession. A misunderstood confession. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus asked his men, What is the people's perception of me? What do they think about me? And the people's answers revealed that they were absolutely blind to the truth. Blind. They didn't see things the way God saw them. They did not. They failed to acknowledge Jesus as the one whom God had promised through His prophets long ago would come into the world as God's Messiah or Christ 
and fulfill God's holy and righteous will on the earth. They failed to see that. Prophet, Elijah, John the Baptist maybe, but no mention of Christ, no mention of Messiah. Their incorrect answers, by the way, are the same ones that were circulating in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. In other words, their understanding at this point had not changed in the slightest. They still got the same mindset. They still see the same way. But the question is, would the disciples be persuaded by popular opinion or would they come to a different conclusion and would that conclusion be the right one? That's the question. This is critical and important to Jesus. Now, in the English translation, you and that's whatever Bible you have, it's probably an English translation, you, you don't see this. So I've got to tell you about it. In the Greek, Jesus' question in verse 29, the original language, it begins with the word you. So here we have in verse 29, and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? You is at the front. You. And what that means is it's emphatic. It means it's being emphasized. There's emphasis placed on the, the you, which you can't see because it looks like it's somewhat nonchalant. But, what do you, but who do you say that I am? The NIV actually tries to capture what the Greek language is communicating. And like I said, it's good sometimes to look at different translations because they do sometimes a better job than other translations of, of capturing what that original language was intending. And so the way they put it is, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? That's how the NIV puts it. In other words, you who I have chosen to be with me and have invested my life into, you who have seen my miracles up close and personal, you who have had the privilege of being part of the inner circle, and you should know me better than anyone. Who do you think I am? That's what he's saying. Now, Peter, we love Peter. He's acting as the spokesperson for the twelve. He's a, he is a leader. He, he steps right out, as we'll see many times throughout the Gospels. He gave Jesus the correct answer. You are the Christ. Luke records it this way. The Gospel of Luke, the same story, records it this way. When Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Yes, Peter. Yes, 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 you are seeing. You are getting it. Now, the story of Mark, as I said, I think last week, has been building slowly. Kind of just revealing the details little by little up to this incredible confession. But it would be premature of us to come to the conclusion that Jesus' disciples are actually now seeing clearly that they really got it. Going back to the healing of the blind men, the disciples had their eyes at this point, and I'm going to show this to you from the text, partially opened. Partially opened by Jesus. They, like the blind men, saw men. But they still kind of looked like trees walking around. They were still blurry a little bit in their understanding. 
As I said, this is a misunderstood confession, not because Jesus didn't understand what Peter had said. He did. It was accurate, and he accepted the title. But Peter and his disciples and the Jewish Jewish community in general had misunderstandings about what being the Christ of God fully and actually meant. In other words, they had an incomplete, narrow, or sometimes corrupted understanding of what Christ would do. What His mission really was. So yeah, they got the title right. But that doesn't mean they yet fully understand. Now they were no doubt very familiar with the words of the prophet Jeremiah regarding the coming Messiah or Christ. You can just look up here on the screen, Jeremiah 23. You can turn there also, verse 5 through 6. I'm just going to read it. This is a prophecy regarding the coming Messiah or Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Just so you understand, that means that just like you think of a tree, they would come forth, this person would come forth from David's descendants. David was the greatest king of the nation of Israel. And he's making a promise that one would come forth from David's family line and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Just understand something. When they say Judah and Israel, it's the nation of Israel they're referring to. Judah is a reference to the southern tribe. Israel is a reference to the northern tribes. So when they say Judah and Israel, think nation of Israel. So he's saying he's going to come. He's going to rule in righteousness. Judah, Israel will be saved. They will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. As opposed to all those lousy kings that you've had in the past, this one will be righteous completely and fully and he will lead the way to your restoration. Wow. That's a good promise. So in the time of Jesus, during this period of time when they were walking on the earth, first century, the Christ or Messiah, just understand when we say Christ or Messiah, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Christ Messiah is the same thing. The Christ or Messiah was understood as the title for the promised descendant of David who would restore the kingdom of David and reign in worldwide power. Okay? That's true. That's true. It was a popular understanding, though, that Christ would come, the Christ, the Christ of God, the one Peter just said was Jesus, that he would come and free the people from their Roman domination. Remember, they were under the thumb of Rome. Rome had conquered the known world. And they had to live and have their religion and their lives under the say of a pagan Roman society and culture and law. And they were fed up with it. So they believed that this Christ would come and unite and lead Israel to their freedom and restore the land God had promised to them. The land that He had promised to Abraham, the land that was then promised to Isaac, 
to Jacob and to the twelve tribes of Israel. The land that they were in, but Rome was ruling over. So, the people were looking for a political ruler, a king, to come and crush Rome. Just like Rome had come and crushed everyone else. The people's desire, beloved, to have a king that would overthrow their enemies and reestablish Israel as a great nation was at an all-time high when Jesus showed up on the scene. This is seen in John chapter 6, verse 15. After Jesus had miraculously fed the multitudes, He fed thousands of people by turning a couple of loaves of bread and a few fish into enough food to feed all of them and satisfy them. How did they respond to that? John 6.15, Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. The people saw in Jesus a person that could physically help them. He can feed us with nothing. That's good. That's a good start. He was very popular. He could possibly lead us out of Roman bondage. The Roman bondage that they so despised. So they intended, if necessary, to force Him, against His will even, to be their King. Now this explains, beloved, why Jesus instructed His disciples not to tell anyone in chapter 8, verse 30, that He actually was the Christ. See, the people wanted a king, period. And their limited understanding of Christ's mission could have resulted in a political uprising that no doubt would have disrupted the predetermined plans Jesus had in going to Jerusalem. His disciples were not ready to tell people He was the Christ because they themselves did not yet understand what that exactly meant. They were still confused. They still had a very narrow understanding, somewhat corrupted, that this Christ of God would just be a political figure that would come back and be able to speak well and and maybe do a few miracles and lead the people out of oppression. But the Christ had much more than that in His mission. So that brings us to The shocking announcement. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is Judah's favorite part. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this not in Proverbs, not in parables, but he said it plainly. He said it plainly. This is the first time, beloved, this is what's happened. You are the Christ. Yes, I am. But I know that you guys still don't see clearly. So let me tell you exactly what that means. The first time in Mark that now Jesus directly, plainly informs His disciples about His death and resurrection. There were hints prior in Mark allusions to His death, maybe His resurrection. But now He's just telling them, they're going to kill Me. 
And three days later, I will rise. He's going to do this two more times in Mark. And guess what? All three times, Mark records that the disciples struggle to get it. They struggle to accept what Jesus is dishing out of His mouth. I'll just read them to you. Mark, actually turn there. If you're in Mark, just turn to the right. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Look at it with me in the text. By the way, Mark now is structured, the remaining book of Mark is structured around these announcements. Three announcements about Jesus' death and resurrection to His disciples. It's structured around them. Mark 9, 31, 32. For He was teaching His disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days, He will rise. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask Him. No doubt, because of what's going to happen, we're going to see here in a second what happened with Peter. They just go, uh, let's just pretend we didn't hear that. And shortly after this statement, by the way, they're caught by Jesus arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest of the twelve. So I, it's obvious, it's apparent, your Christ just said He was going to die, and then you have a discussion about which of you is the greatest. You're not getting it. Mark 10, flip over to the right, verse 32. 10.32 And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, again, He began to tell them what was to happen to Him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now He's going to become more detailed. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. And they will mock Him, and spit on Him, and flog Him, and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. Beloved, shortly after this statement, two of the disciples came up to Jesus and asked Him if He would give them a special place of honor in the kingdom. They just don't get it. They just... It's almost like it is spiritual corruption of their eyes. They don't see clearly. He just said he's going to be tortured and killed. And you guys want to make sure that you get a special seat in the kingdom. Now the repetitive nature of the announcement indicates the importance of its content. This is important to Jesus. Three times He's continuing, laboring for His disciples that they would see, but they're not seeing clearly. Their blurred vision allowed them to see and know that He was the Christ, but they did not understand that Christ had to die. Notice in verse 31, back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, look back there. Notice in verse 31 that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man... By the way, the Son of Man is a title used often by Jesus more often than any other title. It was one that described Him. There's a reference in it to, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. We're not going to turn there today. But it, anytime you see the Son of Man in the New Testament, it's a reference to Jesus Christ. 
He says the Son of Man must. You see that word must in chapter 8, verse 31? He must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and rise again. Don't miss the word must. In other words, this had to happen. This was not optional for Jesus. Beloved, for only through Christ's sacrifice sacrifice and resurrection could man's redemption, his everlasting salvation, become a reality. Only through that. This had to happen. Look up at the screen. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is after Christ's death and resurrection. You know Peter, the guy that rebukes Jesus? Oh, he got it. He got it. He eventually got it because these are his words. Listen to them. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. As he appeals and preaches to the crowds, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, handed over, murdered, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter understands it now. This had to happen. This was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, in verse 10. This is a messianic prophecy. In other words, it looks forward to the time where the Christ would come and do something incredible. Beginning in verse 10, you can just look up on the screen. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. We read that and I don't even, it's hard to even deal with that. It was the will of God to crush His Son. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. Not His guilt, beloved. Mine. Yours. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. Verse 11, Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities, their sin, their guilt, their vile, because it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of God that His Christ would die for the sin of His people. And it was absolutely necessary in order for any sinner to be reconciled or brought back to a proper relationship with their holy Creator. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was absolutely necessary. But how did Jesus' disciples respond to the news that the Christ must suffer and die? How did they respond? That brings us to the fourth point, a foolish rebuke. Look back at the text with me. Chapter 8, verse 32, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter Peter heard what he said, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, when we look back 
at Mark 8, 31, 32, and we read this section. In order to really feel the weight of what Jesus had said, we need to remember that not only was this the first time that the disciples had heard Jesus say this. This is the first time, guys. They'd never heard anything like this. But it was the last thing they ever expected. The Christ, the King of glory, the righteous one who would come and rule and reign with a mighty arm. It's the last thing they ever expected he would say. You see, What? If you die, how are you going to rule? How are you going to restore us as a nation? How are you going to free us from the bondage of Rome? What are you talking about? Are you, are you kidding me, Jesus? You know what? We won't let that happen to you. Nope. That is not going to happen to you. You are the Christ. Hello. Why would you say such things? Matthew records Peter's rebuke like this. It's, it's even better. Matthew 16, 22. And, and Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you. Now, Peter, he didn't know it at the time. <laughs> he didn't know, but by, re- by rebuking Jesus, he was in a very real sense telling Jesus not to submit to his Father's will. It was his Father's will. It was his predetermined plan to crush his Son for the sake of his people. It was God's perfect plan to save sinners. And Peter was guaranteeing that the disciples would personally see to it that Jesus would never become the Savior of the world. This shall never happen to you. Now, as I said, he he didn't know what he was saying. I can only imagine the hurt. And I say imagine because the text doesn't tell us. So I'm going to imagine a little bit. I can only imagine the hurt that Jesus had for his disciples as he took in Peter's words. Maybe he was thinking, you, you have no idea, my son, what you are saying. Oh, I love your zeal, but it's in the wrong direction. You're going to come to regret those words, my my beloved son, when you realize how ridiculous they are. If I don't die for your sins, if I don't do this, then you will remain enemies of God, having no hope in this world, and you will be cut off from the promised coming kingdom that you have anticipated and longed for. You get that? That's, that's maybe what he was thinking. This is the only way. It's God's way. If Peter had understood his need for salvation and that Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on the cross was the only, beloved, only God-approved method for saving Peter's soul, 
If he knew that, I am certain he would have reacted differently to Jesus' announcement. He would have not rebuked him. He would have accepted it with humility and gratitude instead of reprimanding his Lord. If he would have seen things clearly. And so that brings us to the last point, a needed rebuke. A needed rebuke. Mark chapter 8, verse 33. But turning, so here he is, Peter's rebuking him, in the middle of this, turning and seeing his disciples, he sees the other eleven, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's rebuke, beloved, was not something that Jesus could just ignore or wait to address at another time. Oh, this will blow over. They'll figure it out eventually. This was no small matter. Peter's actions represented a serious defect in his understanding about Christ. And by the way, there is little doubt that he was speaking on behalf of the other disciples. In other words, he was their representative. So if he was rebuking Jesus, he turns and sees the eleven. They're all nodding in a sense. Yeah, get him, Peter. Tell him what he doesn't know. So Jesus turns now. He turns where he can see the disciples and with some very strong words. He rebukes Peter in front of them all. Now, Jesus was not saying that Peter had suddenly been possessed by Satan or Peter was the devil in disguise. That's not, that's not what's being communicated. He is simply expressing commonality between Peter's rebuke and Satan's attempts in the wilderness where he tempted Jesus to go against God's will. Peter, you're doing the same Exact thing. You don't see it, but you're doing the same thing. I am here to do God's will and I will do it. And you're saying it's never going to happen. You're going to make sure of it. Then you're acting no different than the devil himself. Peter had unknowingly become a, a tool of the devil in that statement. Such glory. You are the Christ. Get behind me, Satan. Because he didn't see clearly yet. Peter's mind was more focused, beloved, according to Jesus, on imperfect human concerns than on what really concerned God. The glorious salvation of sinners. Now, the disciples still had blurry vision, but after the cross and resurrection... Like the men or the man at Bethsaida, they would see everything clearly and understand how significant it was for them that Jesus suffered and died and was resurrected. They got it. They got it, but it won't happen until the cross and his resurrection. It won't happen. They won't fully see clearly. But once that event happens, they look back and they begin to understand everything the right way. It is as if they got to put on that prescription pair of glasses and all of a sudden all that fuzzy stuff that they didn't understand before became crisp and it rocked their world. 
as it should. Beloved, I would appeal to you this morning to meditate, to think deeply about the necessity of the cross. The necessity of Jesus' mission. Jesus' death was not an accident. Jesus was not a victim who found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, just another poor slob hanging out in Jerusalem, making a fuss, got himself in trouble, killed by the Romans. No. The cross, if you see things God's way, was Christ's God-given mission of grace, compassion, and love, and mercy, and justice. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, we'll get there soon, for even the Son of Man came not, keyword, to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You want to know why I'm here? This is why. To give my life a ransom for many. After His resurrection, He visited two men on the road to Emmaus. Maybe you know the story. But they didn't know who he was. And the text says that this is after his death, his resurrection, that they were both sad. They were walking along as two men do and they were sad about the events of the day and about Jesus' death. Jesus comes upon them. They're not sure who he is. He says to them in Luke 24, verse 25 and 26, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he says in verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into His glory? Was it not necessary? It's a rhetorical question. Yes! That's what it... You know what? Yes, it was. It was absolutely... If it was not for that, then no one's getting into the kingdom because God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and we are sinners in need of righteousness, a righteousness that we do not have. The cross of Christ is so important, so critical for people to know that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, this is Paul's words, the Apostle Paul, for I decided when I visited you to know nothing among you, nothing. This is all I want to communicate to you. It is the most important thing that I can say. I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ what if it was that was it? Just accept Jesus Christ. No, that's not enough. Accept Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the one thing you must understand and know. It is the one thing that you must come to grips with. It is the one thing that you must see clearly. If you don't get that right, then everything else will be blurry to you. You won't see things as God sees them. You won't see that it was God's will to save a people from their sin. One writer, John MacArthur, says that the preaching of the cross was so dominant, meaning it just was everywhere in the early church. It was all that the people were talking about, that they were accused, believers were accused of worshiping a dead man. Like, all you guys talk about is this Jesus and His crucifixion. That's all you want to talk about. Because that is all there is to talk about. When it's all said and done, that is all there is to talk about. There is, that is the starting point of our lives. 
It is interesting, beloved, that the very thing that Peter rebuked Jesus for would become the thing that he would spend his life proclaiming and eventually dying for and eventually dying on. Jesus, that's never going to happen to you. Oh, but he saw clearly. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified, martyred for his faith, for his proclamation of the cross, for this proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But he felt unworthy to be crucified as his Lord. So he asked that they would put him upside down when they put him on the cross. Here's a few things to think about for you as we end our time. No cross, beloved. No cross then no salvation. No cross, then no substitution. No one stepping in on our behalf to take the guilt of our sins. No one living the perfect righteous life that you and I could never live and then giving it to us when we place our faith in Him. Crediting His righteousness to our account that we might enter into the kingdom of God on that day. That righteous and holy kingdom No cross, beloved, then no justification. We have not been made right with God. No cross, beloved, then no reconciliation. We are still enemies of God. No cross, then no transformation. This power of sin has not been broken. It still owns us and rules us. It is still our master. And any hope of recovery... Is futile. No cross, then no glorification. Nothing to look forward to. No resurrected body. No life with Christ. No eternal glory. No cross, then no celebration. Then everything we just did this morning was a phenomenal waste of time. Kidding ourselves. No cross, then only condemnation. That's it. But Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of the cross, beloved. I pray that we might see clearly this morning the necessity of the cross. Take it all away, beloved. Take away our homes, our cars, our health. Take it all away. But if we have the cross, we actually have it all. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I, I thank You that we are on this side of the cross. That, that, Father, we live in a very unique time. And Lord, to those of us who know the cross, we know the, the truths of it. We, we adore them. We have believed them. We have put ourselves in them. We have trusted in 
the truths of the cross, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we give You praise and thanks for opening our eyes and giving us eyes to see clearly that we might embrace reality. That we might be able to see things as God sees them. That it was His will to redeem a people to Himself. To make them right. To reconcile them. To justify them. To bring them back to Himself into relationship that would never be broken. And Father, I pray for those who still do not see clearly. Lord, would You open their eyes. Would You not leave them with blurry vision? Would You... Restore their spiritual sight that they might be able to see things rightly. Father, even to some degree, those of us who who know the cross and proclaim the cross and preach it to ourselves, sometimes we have trouble really seeing clearly. And we get confused and stuff gets into our eyes and our vision becomes blurry. And when that happens, Father, we are like blind men walking around on this earth. Father, help us to keep our eyesight crystal clear when it comes to the necessity of the cross and the significance of it in our lives. In His name, the One who gave Himself upon that cross, we come before You. Amen.